A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Assalamu Alaikum to our dear listeners and viewers and welcome to another episode of The Breakdown by Al-Hadi Youth Who are the sources of authority in Shia Islam after the Imams? And who decided this? Have scholars always had the same authority that they have since the Imam's occultation or has this changed and developed over time? What are the main sources that the scholars use to establish their authority? And who were the key individuals that helped form the Shia Islam that we follow today? Join me as I discuss these topics and many more with Dr. Zachary Hearn. Dr. Hearn is an associate professor and chair of the Department of History at Idaho State University. He has written a number of books and articles centered around Shia Islam, including The Emergence of Modern Shiism, Islamic Reform in Iraq and Iran, Shi'i Law and Leadership, The Influence of Sheikh Murtaza Ansari, as well as a number of other articles. If you haven't already, do listen to my previous podcast with Dr. Hearn on the great Usuli and Akhbari debate, which, is, which are episodes 20 and 21 of The Breakdown. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So, Zach, um, you, you, you released this paper and I had a read of it. Um, you mentioned that the, there's three main sources of knowledge in, in Shia Islam, texts, reason, and mysticism. The latter one sort of interested me a bit, a bit more because, I mean, I think when you think generally, you don't really see mysticism as a source of knowledge in, in Shia Islam. I sort of see it as a side thing almost, although perhaps that's not the way to look at it. But um, we, we, can sort of, we, we can sort of get into that later. Um, in, in, in coming up to your conclusions, you, you discuss, um, you break sort of up the history of Shia Islam into, into four key stages, which I thought could be, you know, a, a, a good way to, to talk about things. I mean, so I get, I guess to kick it off in, in that first stage, you, you discuss, you, you, you discuss it as the formation of law, mysticism and Hadith collection. So I guess, I guess we're talking from the, st- the start of, of when we have the Imams available, um, it, it, who are obviously the obvious sources of authority alongside the prophet. Um, when, when the 12th Imam, uh, goes into occultation we, we've got his 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 deputies but after that we're sort of stuck we don't we don't really have this source of knowledge and so, so, so I, I, I don't know what um what you think was sort of sort of the starting point of of that how, how did how did the formation of law and mysticism come about do you think yeah that's a such an interesting question so um yeah it seems like you know based on the prophet and the imams you get these three sources. Mm-hmm. But after that, it does seem, you know, and historically the way that we write about these things and think about these things, it's often even separate scholars who are thinking about it, right? So what I'm doing is not the normal way of doing things. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm trying to propose this idea that, um, you know, that uh, even rationalist scholars are often um, engaged in mystical sort of activity or even just find their authority based on dreams and um, you know different types of visions or whatever. Um, and I think that um, you know the source of this goes back to the prophet and the imams of how they themselves um, are described to have, you know, attain their knowledge, whether it's through meditation or, or uh, dreams or what have you. Yeah. Um, and so I think what happens is that we have scholars and other people 
who are basically trying to mimic this. Okay. Um, and it becomes a tricky, I think it becomes a tricky thing because where's the line where, you know, at some point you run into the line of saying, okay, well, if you try to mimic the imams or the prophet too much, then you're claiming that same status. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we even see different scholars and different mystics getting themselves into trouble. I think when they stick to, you know, and I think so for Islamic law, it's really the texts and the uh, and uh, and rational uh, sources of knowledge. Um, and it's even been a debate whether, whether reason is an independent source of, uh, of knowledge or whether it's sort of um, a tool to understand the texts, right? That's, that's been a longstanding debate, um, you know, and even one that sort of has divided Akhbaris and Usulis. Um, but then you have mystics um, who are often treated as sort of separate, you know, in the whole Sufi tradition, um, that, uh, that really develops some of these ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and you get mystical philosophers as well. So there's a lot of, um, um, you know, even though oftentimes these fields are treated as separate, um, there is some overlap, I think, especially with, um, you, you know, theosophers, um, and, and sort of mystical philosophers. Uh, but, but it seems like, um, you know, and, and you, you asked the question of what are the origins of this? And I said, I, I suppose, you know, the origins are found in the texts, um, but this tradition starts to develop, um, I suppose, during the time of the imams. Uh, but then after the occultation of the imam, you have the situation where really um, scholars have to decide what their status is. Yeah. And what their position is yeah. and how much authority they have um, and what their sources of knowledge are. So I think, you know, it's after the occultation that you really have these difficult questions uh, for scholars to answer, because before that, you, you could just ask the imam. Yeah, right? exactly. Put that, the community could put that question to the imam or to the uh, to his, um, you know, if it's the 12th imam uh, to the safirs or whatever. So, um, but after this time, then it really becomes a real live question. I think it also becomes a question when, um, for uh, political figures, um, and, um, and I think, you know, there are several references that I make in the paper about, um, you know, this idea of uh, state-sponsored scholarship and what the state sort of uh, wants to encourage scholars to, to do for them. Um, so I think sometimes things change as politics get involved as well, uh, yeah. both for better or worse. I'm not saying it's good or bad. Um, uh, I think it just happens though. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of, um, in terms of that first period that you define it as during the formation of law, the formation of mysticism and the sort of Hadith collection, the initial collection, who then, who then in your opinion are the sort of the main proponents in, in in that period the the key figures so to speak yeah so um yeah so early on um and again you have uh scholars like Hussein Modarasi who are saying that you know the imams are exemplifying reason right so so there's this idea that the imams are are, are already doing this um but um but you also have uh, some hadith collection uh, early on you have um, 
you know, the, the four books. Um, so um, uh, you have Al Kuleni's uh, Al Kafi yep. uh, that becomes, and, and so this is, he, he dies in 940. So, um, uh, and then you have uh, a Sheikh Sadduk's uh, book as well. Um, and, um, and, and so this is sort of 10th century uh, when it, in, in 10th century seems like such a critical period because you have these uh, hadith collectors, um, you have the development of mystical trends yeah. uh, within the, uh, within the um, system. I mean, Sufism is sort of budding at this period as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, that, and then there are traditions as well of the imams possessing um, this sort of extra spiritual knowledge. And sometimes that's even very tangible. Um, the imams are supposed to have um, uh, had the, the, the red and white lambskins, the Abraham scrolls, Fatima's book. Um, so, um, so again, this is also fodder for uh, mystics to sort of wonder like what's in, what's in, what's in those sources? <laughs> How do we get access to that information? I mean, it's almost impossible to just say, yeah, okay, this knowledge is, exists and the imams have it, uh, but it's sort of off limits to you. I mean, of course we're going to want to know, right? And, uh, and we're going to want to attain that sort of spiritual um, ability to do that. And, and in fact, there are also stories and, you know, um, the whole genre of hagiography um, contains so many of these stories of the imams uh, allowing uh, their disciples and, and sort of early uh, or early uh, Muslims to um, to uh, basically engage in, in miraculous type of feats. Uh, so there's a story about Imam al-Baqir, for example, extracting gold uh, from the ground with his foot uh, because uh, one of his followers complained of being poor. Um, and, um, and then there are examples of... Uh, of early sort of uh, sort of uh, lay Shias or, or even scholars um, being able to um, you know attain these sort of feats of of or, or miracles. Um, Salman al Farisi, for example, is yeah. is known for that. He could sort of uh, foretell the future and communicate with angels and that sort of thing. So, um, and this is also where we get into this debate of where that line is yeah. so that's where we also start talking about uh the uh, gulat tradition of um claiming that some are exaggerators and they're you know they're sort of f- fabricating these things that they can do or that that was witnessed or whatever um so those uh those things sort of become come into debate um uh, over where that line is with miraculous things. And I, one of the interesting things for me is where, especially if it's a scholar saying, you know, take the example, much later example of Wahid Bethahani, mm-hmm. who yeah. I, I've focused on uh, for quite some time. Um, but as a pure sort of rationalist scholar, uh, there, his hagiographers were basically saying he received, you know, one of his books in a dream from the imam like he had a dream of the imam and the imam gave him the scroll and that scroll then is this book that's attributed to him um so then the question is to what extent are people sort of required you know especially once we get into this idea later in the tradition in the modern period of marja taqlid okay do people have to do taqlid to this 
book or or was that scroll that information was it meant for him personally or was it is he being used as a sort of vehicle for this information to be disseminated throughout the community um and so i think that's an incredibly interesting question yes, of like yes. okay someone's had the spiritual experience who is it meant for right um so i think that that's a fascinating sort of idea yeah and that that's something we definitely want to come on um, when we reach the the later of, of the four periods that you describe um so i mean i guess i guess before before we move on to, to the next one and i i know from 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 reading your article i think you sort of define as Sheikh Mufid as the one who sort of is the start of that next period. But prior prior to him, uh, and this is a question I think I want to ask you in each four section is how did the scholars at that time sort of view themselves and view their status in terms of the wider public? Did they sort of just, just view themselves as merely, I would say, merely hadith collectors and that's all they do or, or as something more or as today we have, you know, the Marja Taqlid, um, was it was it like that? Or, or how did they how how did they sort of think they had that station? Mm. That's such an interesting question. I don't know if I have a great answer for that. <laughs> uh, it's such a great question and one that I I wish I could answer better. Um, but um, it, it seems like most uh, scholars, and and it's also hard to generalize too. Um, but I would say most scholars would say, okay, I'm going to collect hadith because yeah. this is the sort of sure, uh, this is where I can find the most certain or sure knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. This is where I can get the closest to uh, to the imams, right? And this becomes the sort of sure knowledge for me. Um, and then rationalists, I would say, okay, um, that might say, okay, well, we're a bit more pragmatic about these hadiths. Some of them were not widely spread. Um, they were, um, uh, um, you know, they're, they're only disseminated by single sources. So, you know, as a sort of historian, they would say, you know, these are, we're not exactly how, how certain these hadiths are. So, you know, we need to rely a bit more on reason and, and rational thought. And then I would say the same thing for mystics. If they have that very real mystical experience, um, then they would say, okay, this is, this is where I'm going to get sure knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, so, so I would say most of them, um, uh, I'm, I'm sure, uh, or I assume what they were, they were approaching things the way they did because it, they thought it was the right thing to do. Um, or they thought that it was the, you know, the best way to justify maybe even what they were doing. Um, but, but like deeply personally, I'm, I'm not sure it's hard to generalize. Yeah. Um, but certainly by the, you know, by the time we do get to the 10th century or so, uh, scholars have a certain standing in the community, yeah. right. As, um, you know, not, not as sort of the, like the priestly, um, class in the Christian world, but certainly a respected class uh, of people who are relied on uh, for knowledge. Um, so there's, there's nothing quite yet. I mean, once we get into the second stage of rationalism with, you know, after Sheikh Al-Mufid and the others, there is, there does develop this idea that uh, scholars are heirs of the prophet uh, yeah. or heirs of the imam. Uh, so we do start to get into this discussion uh, of Marja fairly 
early, uh, you know, early on, I think probably earlier than a lot of people realize, um, but it doesn't become practice until, you know, uh, and that's debatable, but probably till the 17, 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess then, then I suppose that's a nice sort of segue into, <laughs> into that next stage, isn't it? Um, you, you, you've called this sort of section, this, this period of history, rationalism and illumination. So I guess to, to, to sort of kick off, I wonder why, why the word illumination? What, what, was, what was illuminating? Oh. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So yeah, we do get this illuminationist uh, tradition uh, that, um, uh, that develops. There, there are all these sources about, um, you know, for example, the prophets, the prophet and the imams being um, uh, created from sort of pure light right and there's this idea of light being you know a sort of symbolic uh idea for for spirituality and and specialness uh for them so uh so this tradition of illuminationism develops um i think partially based on that that sort of tradition um and so we really once we get into this period um, we we really have some sub- substantial uh, scholarship that um, you know that we can sort of rely on on some of these ideas or yeah. or, or, or get some of these ideas. Um, and again, you know, in terms of the periodization, it's uh, that I that I put forward. It's fairly broad and generic, yeah. um, but I think it helps us to understand a, a sort of timeline, uh, roughly, of what happened. Of course. Also, as a story, as a story, and I mean, you're sort of tied to the texts. Um, you know, we're tied to what we have access to. Yeah. So maybe these some of these ideas were more prevalent early on, but we we just don't have don't the sources to uh, to state it. Um, but you must um, have a time machine, wouldn't it? It absolutely would be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as historians, that's what we all dream about. Um, <laughs> to have a time machine and go back and see how things actually were. Um, but where our time machine are the texts, uh, you know, for, for better or worse, that's what we're stuck with. Um, I but, don't need to ask you if, if you'd go in the future or the past, do I? Yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, yeah, I would certainly go to the past. Um, and um, yeah, I feel like I live as much in the past or maybe even more than in the present, <laughs> much more interesting, <laughs> much more interesting. I think, although the future would be interesting too. Um, I don't know. Sometimes that you wonder where we're going, but, uh, yeah. Um, um, no, yeah, no, yeah. I agreed. The past, uh, it's a wonder, isn't it? Um, mm. I guess sort of, sort of, sort of uh, tra- tracking back slightly, you, you mentioned, and we touched on this previously that you would say Sheikh Mufid as sort of the, sort of the, the start of this, period of rationalization, uh, rationalism and illumination. Um, you know, he was the one who started to adopt the four sources mm-hmm. of, you know, authority, which we discussed in our, our previous podcast, right? So I think there's no need to sort of delve into those. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned you mentioned that after him, um, Sheikh Tusi came, and then sort of his works were then um, used and emulated the word you used Taqlid is the word you used mm-hmm. in terms of Sheikh Tusi's work for some a hundred years or so after him. So I guess the question I have here is that emulation, and you touched on sort of the Maraja Taqlid already, is that sort of a similar type of emulation or, or, or how did it really work back, back then? 
we're talking to 10th century aren't we 11th century so yeah so well by the time we get to um yeah at 2c yeah that's uh, that's basically right um so um yeah we have this debate among these rationalist scholars that's really fascinating and it's about the extent to which reason should be used is it an independent source um or or not um is which one you know there's even a debate of which one which source is sort of more i don't want to say superior but um does do, do texts need the help of reason or does reason need the help of texts yeah um and so this this becomes the debate um so so yeah sheikh atusi um develops this sort of compromise uh, that's retained for for quite some time. Uh, he he goes back and he says, you know, these isolated hadith reports, um, we can use them. Uh, maybe we can, you know, have a little bit more scrutiny uh, for them. Um, and he even compiles some hadith reports, uh, hadith collections uh, himself. And um, so prior to him, it was a sort of uh, a age of where reason really becomes uh, quite prominent. Um, and he, he sort of reigns that back. Um, and there are several reasons for this period of emulation. Um, and mainly it's sort of a, uh, you know, it's described in, um, in sort of history books as this period of tahlid. Um, but I think what that means is that for about 100 years, nobody really challenged uh, his, his sort of model for uh, how text and reason should be used. Um, and partially that's a sort of, uh, historically, what was going on at the time, um, you know, it's sort of a lull in uh, in Shia studies um, in general. Um, this is, this is um, uh, you, you know, politically, there was not a, uh, you know, major dynasties that were supporting Shiism. Uh, so there's some sort of practical reasons for that as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um... And then, I, and then, and then I suppose so. So we have that period of, of sort of no, no one challenging, and then sort of then comes Muhakkak um, Al Hilli, who yeah. proposes sort of a, a new methodology of of ijtihad, which I think every sort of every Shia Muslim today is is very aware of because that, that 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 that's what's happening right now. So I guess would you, would you say that he was the the first sort of the first one to propagate this really this notion? Yeah, and this is a, tr a bit of a tricky one, and I, I will be, you know, it's sort of uh, curious to see what um, sort of contemporary scholars would say about this, um, because I, I think it, it might be a hard pill to swallow to say, look, you know, as for the first several hundred years, um, you know, even rationalist scholars were not engaging in ijtihad. Mm -hmm. um, but this is also part of, uh, I think part of the way we can understand this is that was partially tied to the sort of polemic between Sunnis and, and Shias. Sunnis developed this idea of ijtihad and qiyas um, as, as sort of um, rules for engaging in rationalism um, and, and when, how to apply um, rational thought to the text and all those sort of things. Um, but, um, and so early on, it was this idea that, especially when the Imams were alive, but even after them, it was this idea that, you know, if we have a question, we, we ask the Imam, right? Yeah. So, so in some ways, you know, Shia law is a bit delayed from the Sunni legal tradition because of that time period in which the Imams were alive. 
uh, because the, the legal system then is, you know, if there's a question, ask the imam. Um, so, um, uh, so uh, because I think partially because Shia scholars sort of dug their heels in and said, you know, we're not going to engage in ijtihad al qiyas, partially because we don't have to, um, there was a reticence to accept it, right? And to sort of admit even that that's what we're doing. Um, you know, and so part of it, I think, has to do with that. Um, but uh, Al-Muhaqiq Al-Hili uh, develops this uh, system, and, and he was partially uh, informed by uh, the Sunni tradition, and he thought, you know, this, this could certainly apply in a Shia context. Um, and so, um, and this also gives rise to the authority of, uh, or increased authority for Mujtahids as well. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, I think now we sort of, like you said, we take for granted this idea that those who are in charge are mushtahs because who else would it be? Um, but if you're an akhbari, then you're not engaging in an ijtihad at all. So there's not going to be, you know, there are still clerics and scholars who are um, engaged in trying to answer all these same questions, but they're just going about it in a different way. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess so. So, so, and I, and I know you mentioned that after Muhammad Hilli is his nephew Alama Hilli, who I, I, is probably more famous in sort of the layman Shia eyes today, the, the general population. But he he was sort of the one you mentioned who suggested, you know, having sort of that distinction within the population. You've got the Mujtahids, you've got the Muqallids, you've got the people who know, the people who follow, mm-hmm. and I mean that is sort of what we have today. Um, but it's, 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 it's interesting that you say that that's sort of where it all came from back in the, I don't know what century we're in now, maybe 13th century. Um, yeah, this is like 13th, 14th century. So maybe yeah. a late, uh, uh, late 13th, early 14th century uh, with, uh, with both Al-Muhaqiq and Al-Alama. Um, yeah, so he, and, and again, it's fascinating to see how, how this process evolves over time right and and i think that's what's fascinating about looking at this history in a sort of more holistic way because you have several strands that are developing over time and you don't necessarily know which one of those things are going to win the day it seems obvious today because we have hindsight and we can look back and say well how else would you do it uh but but i don't think there's necessarily even anything inevitable about this um i think it it happens through a, a process over time gradually. Um, uh, but, but, you know, this, this is such a groundbreaking issue, um, this idea that you would have uh, mujtahids and muqalids. And again, in practice, something like that may have already been sort of happening, right? Mm-hmm. But to make it sort of official and, and even, you know, and that also opens the door for uh, later scholars to then say, okay, what are the rules of engagement here? As yeah. as a muqallid, what do I, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, right. I have a title now. Like, <laughs> what does that mean? What is that? What is my role here as a muqallid? What does that mean to be a mujtahid? What what's the interaction between the two? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, uh, even though some of this might have been happening already, uh, to sort of solidify it um, and sort of entrench the culture around it. Um, I think does have a pretty massive effect going forward in the next several centuries. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you can see that till today. So, 
Yeah. And, and so, you know, a similar scholar, uh, 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 Shahida Thani, which is slightly later, um, he then formulates this idea of uh, general vicegerency, right? Uh, and yeah. and, and Niaba is such an important concept um, coming all the way down to the, um, you know, the Islamic revolution in Iran. Um, you know, these, these concepts become uh, incredibly important um, as they were before, but you know, again, once you have a state behind it, um, it becomes uh, it becomes a, such a critical issue, um, uh, uh, sort of going forward. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it again, it, it sort of solidifies and entrenches this idea that the uh, scholars are heirs to the prophet. And again, these are not new ideas. Um, they have been around for quite a long time, but again, once scholarship develops around it, once some of the ideas are sort of elaborated on, once it becomes practice and culture and, you know, um, I think it, you know, it, it evolves, uh, into something new, uh, throughout that process. Yeah. And, and I suppose, so at, at this time, we've got sort of this, this strand of, of, of rationalism as, as perhaps you, you would call it. You know, it starts starts with Sheikh Mufid, goes on, and 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 like you just mentioned, Jahid Thani talking about the the scholars as sort of the representative of of the Imam while he's hidden. But I think mm-hmm. at, at a similar time, we also have, as you mentioned, the Shia mysticism side sort of sort of becoming more prevalent. And something really interesting that you mentioned in your paper is that you 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 sort of you you felt, and do tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but you sort of felt that the Shia mysticism gained popularity as sort of a counter to Sufism, which was becoming quite popular at the time? Yeah, that's, it's an interesting question. And I, and I, um, uh, it seems as though this happens. I mean, it, it probably requires more research to really flesh this out a little bit, Yeah, but, but it certainly seems like once Sufism develops, there's a sort of, uh, you know, there, there's another source of even power, right? So if you're a Sufi sheikh, then you're going to be competing with scholars, right? Um, even if that's not the intention, because people are going to gravitate towards maybe one or the other, they might still do both. Um, but then I think what happens is that you have some, whether they're mystics that become more scholarly inclined or scholars who become more mystically inclined, and you have um, some figures who try to merge uh, merge those ideas, um, and, um, and and so I think that we get all sorts of interesting, you know. And although that's not necessarily the norm, I think you do get several scholars like uh, Syed Haider uh, Amuli, uh, who who tries to sort of fuse these ideas uh, together, mm-hmm. right, and put these sources together and say. You know that we have uh, several uh, several um, sources of knowledge here. I mean, he certainly and most of these scholars sort of or mystical figures um, sort of side on the um, or, or err on the side of mysticism or gnosiology um, as the sort of most uh, important source of knowledge and authority, um, but. They're also writing texts that you make use of reason and draw on the Quran and, you know, um, and so you see all, all the sources there together. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I suppose it's it's interesting to see that sort of that 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 mysticism, that mystical side, sort of sort of becoming more prevalent. I mean, I know today you've got you you're sort of I suppose it's an odd way of saying it when you're when you're sort of in when that in that Shia mindset and, and as a Pakistani Muslim, but you've got a lot of choice, as it were, in terms of how you want to practice your religion, right? You 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 can go down the very sort of the, the very traditional, very literal way of reading the hadith, for example. Or you can you can go down this very mystical, and and almost Sufi like like route, um, as it were, which doesn't have to be in contradiction to, to one another. But in 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 some instances they 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 sort of do diverge, don't they? So it is it is interesting to see that that sort of sort of becoming more prevalent in in fifteenth um, fifteenth century fourteenth century at the time. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, it does seem to be becoming more prevalent and, and you have quite a few um, figures who have sort of exemplify this. Suhuru Ardi uh, as another example, um, who just become towering figures. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes, I mean, at least during this time frame, you know, the community is not exactly f f forgiving <laughs> to these figures because, you know, uh, like Suhuru Ardi, for example, um, uh, I think he's executed by Saladin's government, you know, and it's sort of determined that he, he sort of crossed the line um, uh, because, you know, the, I think the fear is that someone's going to advocate that they've received revelation or something comparable mm. to what the, the prophet and the imams did. Um, so I think there's, you know, getting close to that line, but not too far, um, I think as part of it. And I, and I think what happens um, you know, partially even still in the modern period is that um, I think a lot of people sort of see that as, as something that's private, right? It's yeah. for them personally. Yeah. Yeah. The mystical path is for me, it's not something that I'm necessarily going to share. Yeah. Um, we have several, ex quite a few examples of this, um, you know, even um, like Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, there are examples, especially during his early career as an early student, he was extremely interested in mysticism mm -hmm. but when you read Khomeini's writings you don't necessarily get much mysticism right um, he certainly was interested and, and so you think maybe it's a part of a sort of personal path uh, that that people follow and then you know and it and I think it, one thing that we haven't mentioned is this uh, concept of um, Zahir and Batten this mm -hmm. idea of the sort of external idea and internal yeah right so there's um and maybe in the modern period, like much of the world um, uh, has done with religion, it's this, I have my external sort of legalistic life yeah. uh, that, you know, I engage in when I'm, you know, dealing with other people and then I have my sort of internal, um, you know, spiritual uh, life that that's sort of personal. And again, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but, um, but I think uh, there might be something there. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting discussion and a, and a point to point to sort of dis discuss i mean you you have the the discussions oh is it is it more important to, to to pray with your heart or is it more important than you do the actions in exactly the right way not mm. to say one is more important than the other or that they're both important but just those, those kind of discussions as you say um yeah yeah, yeah no, that's a sort of t i don't know if it's either depending on how you interpret it it's either like a uh, complementary yin yang type of idea yeah. of one sort of complements the other, or it's a tug of war, you know, between the sort of legalistic side 
of yeah. Islam and the sort of mystical Sufi side, right? Yeah. In which yeah. sometimes they're at odds, but other times they're sort of complementary to each other. Um, yeah. And I think that can happen for individuals as well. Yeah, and, and I know you mentioned in your paper, you mentioned um, Mullah Sadra Shirazi yes. as one of sort, of sort of the main ones. And would you say that then he, that obviously I think a lot of people are, are, are sort of familiar with his writings now, um, but so then would you say that he sort of very much went down just that that spiritual that spiritual path or, or was there any sort of fusion as it were with them? yeah i mean he definitely um he definitely was a sort of rationalist um mystic i mean his his brands are sort of often described as um as a sort of um mystical philosophy mm-hmm. you know so i think you could just as much think of him as a sort of mystical figure as a as a philosopher, um, and um, and he's such a great example. And and I think many people, you know, many Shia, especially today, sort of look at him as the sort of culmination yeah. of this entire tradition, yeah. and, and 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 even perhaps the 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 last great uh um example of this type of philosophy and um and his um there's certainly a lot uh to his scholarship that still is worthy of a lot of uh, uh consideration and discussion which is why we have a lot of you know still a lot of scholars working on his uh on his uh, work yeah uh, sure yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot there and it's it's also quite complex uh <laughs> to even try to wrap your mind around uh, what's going on there uh, there's, um, you know, you can spend a lifetime, uh, trying to un- unravel that. Um, and may not, that may not be enough. <laughs> <laughs> I have to save some for the next, for the afterlife, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess sort of, sort of just before we move, move on to the third period, I told you, I would ask you this question and, and you did sort of, you did, you did kind of answer it, but, um, in, 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 at this point after this sort of, this, this, this rationalism period is sort of culminated as it were scholars now viewing themselves as like we mentioned vicegerents of the imam as more more important in, mm. in society as more sort of with more power is that right yeah it seems like that I, i'm not exactly sure how that translates in practice mm-hmm. um and um and and that would be a great sort of topic for someone to sort of get into um because i don't understand you know um, in, in my mind, at least, this is still sort of in the realm of theory, right? And the ideas are being put forward, um, and, and maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, but but I don't um, I don't know personally of examples of these ideas being put forward in practice. I mean, they, cer- they certainly may be, um, but um, and so that that's an important I think question that that someone could still try to answer of. Okay, these ideas are put forward. How were they sort of grappled with, and how were they um, put in practice or not during the time? Uh, my understanding is that this is sort of, sort of still at the level of uh, of theory and, and idea um, that uh, that were there. Um, Unfortunately, that is all we have time for on this podcast. But do stay tuned for part two, where I continue this discussion with Dr. Hearn. As always. If you have any suggestions for guests or topics that you would like to listen to, please let us know on Instagram or Facebook. Our handle is at Al Hadi Youth. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.